Okay. Really? Okay. So there's a lot of echo here. It's a lot of echo, no? So we we'll start. I, I realize. All right. Uh, good morning, good morning. A very warm welcome to Bruegel's annual meeting 2019. On behalf of all Bruegel staff, I'm very pleased uh, to welcome you today and uh, to host you today. So my name is Guntram Wolf and I'm the director of Bruegel. And I have the honor to introduce this first session, which is um, the launch of uh, a set of memos written for the new European Commission and the new EU leadership. Now, of course, this comes at a moment where the new leadership takes office. Um, as you know, um, we will soon have a new European Commission. We will soon have a new ECB president. And so um, it's an important moment um, in, uh, in the European endeavor. Now, 21 fellows of Bruegel have been joining in the effort to write 16 memos. We address a memo to the president of the European Commission uh, and the parliament and the council. We address a memo to the high representative and we address a memo to the ECB and we address 13 individual commissioners. So that's a lot of memos. Don't get scared by the big book. It is a big book, um, but you can read every individual chapter individually. So if you are only interested in investment issues, for example, don't hesitate to just read uh, the investment memo and download it individually. As with all Bruegel publications, um, the individual memos represent the opinions um, of the individual researchers, but the whole book, of course, is edited by my colleague uh, Maria de Merzes um, and myself. Now, I would have loved to have all 21 fellows here on stage, um, but we can't do that. Um, but most fellows in the course of the day will speak uh, in one of the sessions. But uh, fortunately, we found Martina Stevis, um, who is the EU correspondent of the New York Times, uh, to, uh, to join us and to basically guide us and walk us through this set uh, of memos. And let me give the floor to you, Martina. Thank you for doing it. Thank you. Morning for me as well. There's a tiny bit of echo, so we'll try and make sure we speak clearly. We hope we all hear as well. Um, thanks for coming in so early in the morning. It's a great day, great morning to talk about Europe and talk about the next five years. My role here is really more like being the traffic cop. I know I'm not dressed for it, but I'll do my best. Um, the key thing and, and the key priority for Gontram and Maria and Bruegel this morning is to allow you to participate. We're using Slido. The way to use it is right behind me. Just go on your smartphone. Is one of the few times we won't be offended that you're looking down at your phone rather than at us. Um, type in slide.do and follow um, the questions on there. You can type in your question and I'll be able to take some from you that will cut back on the time we spend in backs and forths and being polite and impolite to each other, people making huge statements. I'd love to hear your questions and I'll make sure as many of them as possible are going to be brought 
forward and, and put to the fellows of Bruegel who are spending quite a bit of time this morning and throughout the day talking to us about their ideas and their proposals for the new commission. Um, and without further ado, let me just turn to Guntram and Maria. I, I just really want to unpick the three key words on the cover of, of uh, your proposals and your memos to the commission this year. You say braver, greener, fairer. And to me, that sounds like guiding principles. I think a lot of time in this town, we look a lot at, at granular policy, we look a lot at legislation, we look a lot at process, progress process. Um, and in this era of, of really um, counteracting dynamics in the union and in the drama of Brexit, I think it's fascinating that you've chosen to put those principles front and center. So if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit to us about what these principles mean practically. Um, thank you very much, Martina. And again, also, let me also extend a very warm welcome to all of you to our annual meeting. Uh, as you said, Martina, this is very much uh, uh, the principles that we want to put uh, forward. Um, there's 21 of us that were involved in writing this memo. There has been a lot of discussions, a lot of back and forth in terms of what we think we want to say, and a lot of disagreements as well. However, the one thing that is uh, crucial, I think, in terms of underlying uh, this uh, set of memos is that we all agree that the new leadership needs to be bolder in the way that it moves forward. And we started with that, and braver in terms of what types of decisions they take. Um, and, and to complement that, uh, there needs to be a lot of emphasis on the green aspects of the policies that we go forward, not just on policies that are directly related to climate, but everything, everything that we do need to have sufficient consideration for the footprint that it leaves behind. And last but certainly not least, fairness, policies, uh, be it from the process of globalization, of reversing it, all the way down to socioeconomic policies, they need to be fairer, distribution elements need to be at the core of the agenda. So these are the three principles that underline all of the recommendations that we make, and we're hoping that uh, the new leadership will be bolder as they move forward. Okay. But, but, but what does it mean that the commission needs to be brave? I mean, you know, no offense to commission employees here, but when you look at them, they don't scream bravery. So, <laughs> so just talk to me substantially in terms of what is it to be brave, you know, de facto means you're different. So what is it that you're calling them to do differently and bravely compared to what's been done before? Well, perhaps the one point I would say on this is we, uh, we think this is also an aspirational title, right? I mean, we, we do think European citizens in surveys do say very clearly, we want Europe to be part of the solution when it comes to geopolitics. We don't want my individual country to be talking to Donald Trump, to be talking to uh, the Chinese uh, President Xi Jinping. We want uh, basically the European Union to take a lead. The same for climate policies. We don't want, and that's very clearly visible in surveys, we don't want individual countries to fix, uh, to fix the climate problems. We want there to be some sort of a European strategy. And the same for uh, fairness, for example, taxation. There's lots of surveys showing that actually citizens uh, are unhappy with um, taxation uh, being uh, done only at the national level, allowing some corporate tax evasion that's quite significant in some cases. So 
citizens look for solutions in Europe. The surveys still confirm that. And that's why we chose this a little bit more aspirational title to sort of transmit these messages. And it's not only addressed to, uh, to commission staff. I mean, it's also addressed, um, of course, to the president herself um, or to her, her commissioners. And I think they really need to take a, a lead here and, yes, inspire, aspire for a, a better functioning EU. Right. And, and do you think that um, this setup is sort of fit for purpose in the sense that the input that the new commission gets and the new president gets um, is that sufficiently sort of frank? Is it sufficiently honest so for these messages to come through? Do you think that, you know, people who don't like bureaucracies and don't like the way the, the EU works and functions, the way Brussels functions, would say that the continuity of the so-called Eurocrats, and, and some people use that term uh, not generously, let's, let's put it that way, um, indicate that actually it is very hard to break with continuity and and the change of commissions of course as as we see this morning is is a natural moment to reflect on all these things but really the course of these um, policies doesn't change I feel maybe there's something particularly uh, particularly opportune about this moment in history globally um, could you talk to us a little more maybe about why this moment in history does call for, for the European Union to play a different role altogether, actually, on the global scene? If I may, continuity is a very good word in the way that you described it. We need continuity for policies because that gives us also predictability. But actually, I very strongly believe that more of the same, simple, won't do. So I think this is, this is a good time to stop and think, what do we need to do next? And why is it an opportune moment? I think it's a challenging moment as well as an opportune. There are problems that are coming to us that are probably different than what we've seen before. And I have a sense that certainly by comparison to the past five years, we are now at a very different moment. If you start from the issue of globalization, we are probably in the process of reversing it. The threat of trade wars, some actual trade wars going on. Where is that going to lead to? What would that mean uh, for the way that we do business in the future? This is something that we can affect as Europe, but only we are one Europe. And we should affect it in a way that is better for the average citizen in Europe and, and beyond. So I think that's a very important challenge that we need to think about. And we need to think about it differently than we have up till now. And the second one, of course, is that the biggest, in my view, is climate. This is, it's, it is an emergency. It's no longer uh, something that we can sort of, you know, trot around. There's something we need concrete actions on climate, and this is the time to do it. Right. Um, I'm just going to stop doing too much of the talking because I've only had one coffee as well. And I'm going to take some questions. And thank you so much for participating. I think we're being live streamed and using the exact same method. I'd really invite people who are watching us remotely to send questions as well. Um, wow, a lot, of anon a lot of anonymity. I like it. I mean, you know, the EU's for the uh, private and anonymous web. So this seems on message. Um, there are some sort of inside baseball questions that I think you guys might have something, um, you know, illuminating to add to. For example, Anonymous asks, how is the opt how to structure the new commission optimally? So we do, this town loves to talk about process, but this does seem to be an important question on process that actually impacts outcomes. Yes. Any, any um, memos on, on structure? Well, let me say on the on the structure and um, the process of how to uh, change the course of the ship, how to change just the Eurocrats doing business as usual. 
Of course, there is a big discussion how political should the commission be, and the last commission was very proud uh, to, uh, to have been a political commission with political guidelines. The next one, we have not yet heard the full extent to which they will and want to be political, but it seems to me the direction of travel is one where the political leadership wants to take a stronger hold on messages, a stronger hold on what are the key issues. And so that then translates into the sort of more administrative question, how do you organize uh, an institution? And there, I think my point of view certainly is that it depends very much also on the style of the commission president. So you have a commission president who might be very inclusive in her approach or very uh, hierarchical. But I think we do need to think in terms of, certainly in terms of substantive clusters. I mean, there's clusters around uh, climate policy. Climate policy is not just about uh, some marginal industrial policy issue or some marginal taxation issue. It's about bringing all of these things together. It's not affecting just one commissioner. It's affecting basically everyone. Right. Digital issues. It's several issues, right? I mean, several departments are affected. So you need to organize the work, of course, in a way that, um, you know, these these big priorities get translated into actual policies in all the various departments. Sure. And, and, and just one last thing for me, and I think we're going to catch up on our small delays this morning. The traffic in this town is terrible. I've just moved here and, geez. Um, I'd like to follow up on, on this idea of the political commission. Um, a lot of people love it and a lot of people hate it. And, and in a time when, you know, it's not really clear what Europeans think, um, it, it can be a very controversial position to take. Controversial is not bad, and, and you know, often seeking the least common denominator, we, we come out at suboptimal outcomes. But could one of you maybe talk a little bit about continuing on the path um, of, of a very political commission in these times, and what's really the benefit of doing that? Um, so on the issue of the political commission, I, I think there are there are two issues here, and, and uh, the European Commission has got really two roles, and uh, this is a discussion that we've had very extensively uh, at Bruegel and beyond, and, and one of the functions that it has is to set legislation and, and uh, to recommend legislation that is uh, uh, that is going to be voted. Now, when you're a legislator, uh, you're, you're, you're proposing legislation, it's very difficult to think of doing that apolitically. You cannot be apolitical when you are proposing legislation. You have to fit in a political context that is determined by electoral decisions that have been made in the electoral cycle. And I think there is inevitable. I think the European Commission needs to play a role that is political. That's one thing. But there's another, another function that the European Commission has, and that is to enforce the treaties. Now, where you're enforcing the treaties, you need to be neutral. Now, there is the bit that, because uh, otherwise you're also running the, the, the risk of actually undermining your own credibility. And I think there is the bit that you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be political, you shouldn't be choosy, you should be uh, neutral uh, and as fair as you possibly can. Flexible, now, perhaps, but, uh, <laughs> but non-partisan. That's the way I would phrase it. Um, so I think it's important not to mix the two. So when we're talking about a political commission, uh, there may be rights and there may be wrongs why you may be arguing this, but I think it's important to distinguish the two functions. Right. I think maybe being political is at least a most, uh, more honest approach. It's, it's this, uh, you know, journalists don't have opinions. Like, that's kind of unrealistic. And a, a non, an apolitical commission is also 
uh, a unicorn. And so at least owning the politics perhaps is, is conducive. If I may, I will bid thee farewell and wish you a great day and um, get into the nitty gritty of these memos and invite, um, invite Scott up to talk to us thanks, a bit. Martino. Thank you, thank, thank you, you so much. And thanks for being wonderful hosts. It's already great. Um, just a very quick intro. This is J. Scott Marcus, I think the in-house American. And on top of that, someone who will talk to us this morning about regulation and digital. Um, and bear with us, we all know that regulation is what we do every day in this town, but it's not necessarily the sexiest topic. But we're going to try and make it as sexy as possible by uh, maybe talking about Brexit. I feel like maybe Brexit is the sexiest topic, no. But there is a point to be made that in an era of Euroscepticism that this town and politicians and member states grapple with, play with, use, Regulation really underpins transparency and the effectiveness of what the EU does for its citizens. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about what this commission can do better to bring that sort of front and center um, in its work. Okay, when it comes to bringing regulation front and center, I, I think it potentially plays a really key role in terms of maintaining legitimacy of process. What Maria was just talking about before was the distinction of different missions that the commission has one being politically accountable to the voters, the other being administratively or regulatorily responsible, uh, essentially operating within a defined political context, but responsible effectively to the courts. And the commission has both roles. And keeping them somewhat distinct is important. There are areas like competition law where you really don't want the political process to intervene too much. It inevitably plays a role, but it should be somewhat hands-off, otherwise you undermine the legitimacy of the process. Telecommunications regulation being, I think, another example where you want politicians arm's length away from things. Now, we are today in, a, in an era of Euroscepticism. Uh, you talked about the skepticism, the doubts about the bureaucracy. And uh, to me, that, that skepticism uh, has a certain narrative. And the narrative is about pompous Brussels bureaucrats building their empire, putting one layer of regulation, one layer of law on top of another, and not paying much attention to the burdens that each of those regulations place on firms, on individu individuals, and on somehow the balance between costs and benefits. So there are processes that can help to address that and can also help to maintain public confidence in the legitimacy of the process. And here we are very much talking about process, not about substance. So the, what the Commission has been working progressively on for the last 15 or so, 20 years, is something called a better regulation process, uh, where each of the legislative measures that they put forward is supposed to be pretty rigorously analyzed to make sure that it's not more burdensome than necessary, that it doesn't do things that the member states could better do themselves, that the costs don't exceed the benefits, done properly, it puts some discipline into the process. And all of this is public, um, but it's not all that well known to the public. And I think there's a communication issue that the, especially the Commission, but more broadly the European institutions, need to be taken, taking up. Right. Now, the, the process, it works pretty well for bits of individual legislation. There's really no defined process for broader strategy. 
the economic analysis could be done better. So there's a lot of areas where it could really be improved. Still, I've, I've done work in many parts of the world, and I, have, I would have to say my personal perception is that the European system is among the very best that I've seen, and, uh, and the OECD also rates it that way. Well, that's so, a, that's, a good, a, that's a good message to, to start the day on. You don't hear that a lot these days. The European system is among the best in the world in something that really matters to people. Um, thanks so much for this thought. And I'm just going to jump straight across to your other portfolio, which is also fascinating. Um, in the memos that I urge you to read, I know it's, it's quite a sort of... Um, the, the size is kind of, you know, solid, I would say. Don't be discouraged. It's uh, massive fonts, I can attest. Uh, lots of blog quotes, which make it much easier to read, um, and really very interesting a contribution. So a lot of work has gone into them. Just talking a little bit about digital, it, it, it is continuously striking, I think, to people who, who don't live in Brussels that the European Union remains a taker of technology, a consumer of technology, and, and in this era of, of a, a, a soaring US and China web and tech um, industries, the EU is risking finding itself somewhere in between and being a taker rather than, than a generator of innovation. Often, lending its best minds um, and incredibly intelligent people who are born or educated on the continent to the US, mostly, not so much China yet, although it is happening. Um, and uh, there's also a lot of talk about supporting European champions. I want to ask you what sort of the top line of, of, of uh, you know, big picture policy advice would be to enable the European Union to be more of a generator of innovation and, and revenue, indeed, and jobs in, in the digital space, rather than finding itself in this awkward space between the US and China with implications on geopolitics as well as consumer technology? Well, I, I think you put your finger on a, on a really key issue, and I'm sure it's going to be one of the key issues for European policymakers in the coming five years, in the coming term. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, first, the picture for Europe is not quite as bad as some people want to make it. Uh, we're very quick to say there's no European Google, there's no European Facebook, there's no European Amazon. It's not quite true, but certainly there isn't a European firm of that scale. Um, but it's equally true that in other technology areas, for example, ones that relate to industrial automation that Europe does quite well, business to business kind of uh, traffic uh, platforms, Europe does well. In areas like 5G, which is a really important area, it would be just as true to say that the United States has no company that can rival Ericsson or Nokia. So um, it's not that Europe is without strengths, uh, but we're at a difficult time. Uh, in an era of, uh, of globalization and uh, increasing trade war, uh, where the US and China play a key role in, in technology such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, internet of things, um, the risk of trade disruptions is very great. And of course, what we saw recently with Huawei really demonstrates trade disruption can be very abrupt and very unpredictable today. So Europe really needs to think carefully about how to maintain a broad enough set of sources of supply and broad enough capabilities. And I think there, there's several different things that Europe can be doing to make that better. Now, I have to say, if I knew how to create the next European super champion, I wouldn't be here today. I'd be off doing it. Um, but 
there are things that Europe at policy level can do to make it easier. Uh, and those go, I think, first in terms of single market issues, second in terms of venture capital, third I'd, I'd flag some attitudinal issues. Um, in terms of single market, there are a number of areas uh, where strengthening the single market would help to aggregate demand across Europe and also to make systems more effective. Uh, again, 5G and spectrum is one of the areas that I, I deal in. There, there's agreement on which frequency bands should be used, but it's up to the member states to actually get that stuff assigned to the companies that are going to use it. And some of them will be quick. The Germans have historically been very good on things like this. And some of them will be very slow. And if it's uneven, that creates cross-border issues as well that can be a problem. So the harmonization story is important here, continues to be important. Capital is another issue. Europe has historically been weak on both startups and scale-ups. We've gotten much better on startups in recent years, but we're still weak on scaling companies up to the next level. And that's partly a problem. Europe is very bank-heavy. We're light on equity markets. That's a problem. Uh, we're much lighter than North America when it comes to venture capital. I've seen estimates that maybe the disparity is in the range of five to one. It's big. Also, a firm that's trying to move to the next level, if it wants to do an initial public offering, an IPO, they're probably not going to do it in Europe, certainly not in continental Europe. So um, again, it's an issue. It needs work. Capital Markets Union tried to do something with this. Um, very little actually done. Um, maybe a last point has to do with attitudes. Uh, entrepreneurship. Many North American entrepreneurs do best on the second or third time around. In Europe, if you fail, you're a failure. So there's an attitude problem there, but there's also a policy problem. Onerous and divergent bankruptcy laws across the member states tie up people, tie up capital for long periods of time, make it difficult for somebody who's fallen off to climb back up onto the bar stool. That needs work. I think that's a really interesting point. I'm just going to borrow from another anonymous question on Slido. Please keep sending your questions through. You're making my life easier. You're making this conversation much more interesting and much more about what you care about. So just a reminder, on your screens, you'll be seeing how to do that. Go to sli.do, sli.do, and look for BAM19. This is the hashtag for our session today. And just type in your question. Um, uh, there is a question here which kind of touches and springs off what we've been talking about. What will the EU have to change to get back into the game on data, platform, industry, cloud, AI, and everything exciting in technology under the sun? But uh, let me just borrow from this question and phrase it this way. Is there a particularly specific uh, corner or area of the market and all these cutting-edge technologies right now that the EU may be particularly well-placed to deliver on in a scalable way um, that will really sort of you know, create some momentum? Uh, I think I touched on this in the previous remarks. Probably things that deal with industrial automation, business-to-business, right. uh, -business, industrial uh, uh, industry 4.0. That also includes all about sensors and automation controls. So generally, the Yanks do really well on pure software things. Europe does really well where there's also some sensing or control that's required. I think maybe a psychologist would have something to say about that, but I shall leave that to them. Um, thank you so much for, for your time this morning. And I think without further ado, I will invite Simone Pietra up to talk to us about uh, 
um, climate, policy, and the environment. Um, again, this is, you know, un unless you're very rude in your questions, which you don't, you don't strike me as a rude bunch, um, all questions are really welcome. Please keep them coming. Thanks so much for your contribution and your time this morning. Um, so climate, greener, obviously the new commission, the president-elect rather I should say, has put this top of her agenda. It's become an incredibly fraught political issue as we saw just most recently at the G7 and with the Amazon fires. And Obviously, quite in a, I think perhaps for the first time in a truly substantial way, this really will be at near the top of, of the European Commission agenda. Um, so just getting started, uh, what, what does this really mean in terms of policies? Um, because it's it's hard. It's one of those topics that's really hard to get past the label and past the sure. you know communications benefits of of greenwashing, if you will. Um, so, uh, based on your research and and your memo to the Commission, what what would be the really the very very top yeah. priorities in, yeah. in this regard? Well, in our view, the overarching aim of the new European Commission in terms of climate policy should be the one of fostering deep decarbonization in Europe in view of reaching climate neutrality by 2050. Science is clear. Only by reaching climate neutrality by 2050, we can remain below a temperature rise of 1.5 degrees vis-a-vis -vis the pre-industrial levels, which would prevent the most dramatic impacts of climate change in the planet. We need to do this in a way that become economically, industrially beneficial and socially acceptable. So first of all, the new European Commission will need to reverse the recent failure of the EU in unanimously uh, pointing this target of 2050 carbon, uh, climate neutrality very clearly. This should become Europe's polar star to drive both public and private action in the future. The Commission has the historical duty to make this economically and industrially beneficial, which means uh, linking climate policy to industrial policy and also to uh, development and foreign policy. Socially acceptable, this is key. The Gilets Jaunes has demonstrated that only if society backs this process, this process can continue. To do this, we have all the tools, but we need to launch a deep discussion in Europe, and we need member states to move consistently in this framework to really clarify which can be the pathways to achieve to achieve deep decarbonization that can really have the lower impacts on low-income households. So, so let's just get more into yeah. these policies. Can you even give me three specific policies that you think yeah. would fly across the board that the European Union can get behind and the Commission can propose to member states with some confidence that they will be taken up? Because obviously, the, um, let's say, the landscape across the member states is very different depending on, on, on national conditions. And one of the reasons one feels that the Commission sometimes stumbles, not just in this policy area, but other policy areas, is, is um, 
perhaps being less strong in diagnosing these divergences between member states, putting forward blanket policies that will not be taken up and therefore setting oneself up for heartbreak. So what, is, wh what would you say uh, are things that can be really pursued with some hope of success? And maybe this is a small wins scenario. You know, climate is such a sort of overwhelming and emotional issue. Maybe this is about something that's less, you know, ambitious. Um, that, that genuinely the Commission can say, you know what, we did this in 27, 28, 27 member states, and, and they did it, and it worked. Yeah. Well, first of all, there is no doubt that we need to provide a sensible carbon price in Europe. Only half of the European greenhouse gas emissions are priced and the price remains far too low to drive investments. What the Commission should do, and Ursula von der Leyen was clear on that on the Parliament, is really to revise the current ETS system to enlarge its sectorial coverage and uh, why not also draft uh, a carbon burden tax in order to ensure that we don't encounter carbon leakage problem. The second idea might be the one of setting up a substantial financing mechanism to export the energy transition. Europe only contributes to 10% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. So it's clear that if Europe is serious about fighting climate change, we need to move beyond our borders. We need to accompany our companies that want to make low carbon investments abroad to do so in a confident manner, we need to use better the European Investment Bank or to set up new financing. So does that look like green financing. bonds or...? Also, but uh, really putting in place a system of guarantees to accompany the European private sector to go, for example, in Africa, where 600 million people remain without access to electricity, to provide them the low-carbon assets they need for the future. This is climate policy again, but this is industrial policy. This is promoting the role of European enterprises abroad, and this is foreign policy as well, because it would contribute to political stability in our partner countries. Sure. I'll take, I'll take a Slido question from Anonymous. How can we make EU-wide carbon pricing socially acceptable? I mean, looking at the Yellow Vest movement, etc. Yeah, sure, this is, of course, the golden question here. And uh, what we can do to do this is really to use in a fair manner the revenues we get from this carbon pricing mechanism and redistribute these revenues to the low-income uh, uh, citizens. At Bruegel, Last year, we have done a seminal work on the distributional effects of climate policy, and we have shown that different are the pathways to reach to uh, climate neutrality in 2050. There are ways to, uh, to do that in a sophisticated manner. Climate policy is not just about rising the price of gasoline at the pump. Clearly, you will get uh, a social backlash if you do that, particularly from rural areas where people cannot, uh, of course, avoid to use cars to go to work and to commute and so on. You can start by taxing aviation. Aviation is still uh, not within the, the, the area of the ETS. We might put, first of all, a carbon tax on uh, the aviation sector. Let me interrupt you right there yeah. because I have two questions here. This is great. You're getting warmed up, um, which relates to uh, transport of the public at a mass scale. Yeah. And the one question by anonymous is what about reducing commercial air travel um, 
And the second question, which I think sort of is a good uh, a company, uh, is what about a fully integrated, fast, affordable railway system in Europe? Amen. Um, how, how important should these, I mean, I really fully appreciate that the scale of, of industrial policy yeah, yeah. has got to be up there, but how we behave within Europe in terms of our transportation, I mean, I'm not going to get you to tell people they shouldn't have a third child yeah. or they should all go vegan because, you know, that's, yeah. that's also something that's being debated, debated at the moment. But what about not taking planes and what about supporting trains? That rhymed. Fully agree. Transportation is becoming the major stumbling block in the European decarbonization process. While thinking about climate, about decarbonization, we tend to immediately look at energy, which is, of course, the key contributor. But actually, in terms of sectorial greenhouse gas emissions, sec the, the sector that is emitting the most today is transport. Over the last 20 years, emissions have strongly declined in all sectors of the European economy, they have increased by 20% in the transport sector. So we need a new strategy to decarbonize the European transport, and to do this, we have two main pathways. The first is to promote model shift. We need to ensure that, for example, among the cities in Europe that can be connected through high-speed train, people will use that model, modality instead of flying. Second, we need to invest in cleaner vehicles and cleaner means of transport, which, again, goes back to the industrial policy discussion. We need to make sure that the European automotive industry is a leader in electric vehicles, is a leader in the storage, in the batteries, and uh, that you can do first, carbon pricing, which provides the investment signals in the long term, and second, environmental standards. Super interesting. I mean, I think this uh, conversation will be with us in part for the rest of the day yes. and the rest of the year and the rest of time, it seems. Um, thank you so thank much, you so much. Simone. Thank and, you. Thank you very much. Um, let me thank invite, you. I think, Zolt Davros is next. Hello. Welcome, hey. everyone. Um, I think I, I know Zolt from my previous life, and um, so it's really great to see you this morning to talk about something that is so controversial um, and at the same time receives attention only once every five years, which is the budget. Um, how we get to fund all these things and is it too big, is it too small, is it spent correctly? And I think there's some fairly, uh, you know, maybe to, to people who are fresh to EU affairs, pretty obvious suggestions in the memos, but actually for EU veterans, actually very controversial. Um, but let me just start off by asking you, is the MFF big enough? Should the budget be bigger? Should it be smaller? Um, and before we get into how efficiently it's spent and what it's spent on, which obviously is really controversial and up for debate, it's just a, straight off the bat. Do we need to be putting more money into, into the European Union budget? First, there would be a number of pan-European spending areas which would deserve more spending. I mean, we can list many of them. I mean, perhaps the most important one is environment. I mean, Simone in front of me just mentioned a number of ideas on how we could spend more in a useful way on the environment. I mean, research is also uh, a pan-European uh, 
I mean, uh, aspect. I mean, research is not national. Many research institutes, researchers contribute. Knowledge will become common knowledge and will benefit many, many EU countries. And there could be a number of other areas, like, for example, youth mobility or border protection, migration management, and so on, which would deserve more spending. But coming back to your question, uh, whether we should spend more, I think we should keep in mind the very special nature of the European Union budget, because European Union budget amounts to only about 1% of European Union GDP, while member states spend an additional 50% of their GDP on various kinds of public services. So it means that what the EU spends is just the one fiftieth of the total public spending in the European Union. So we spend currently a very little amount, but this little amount should be chosen very, very carefully, focusing clearly on spending areas which have pan-European implications. And the big problem at the moment is that some of the large spending items do not belong to that category. And in a number of member states, they are very much concerned that the current, some of the current spending priorities do not constitute a so-called true European public good. Those spending could be done nationally equally well, or even some of them might be even reduced or eliminated. And I think until we get confidence that all EU spending is truly pan-European, supporting pan-European public goods, I think up to that point, it's no reason to, or, uh, to discuss whether the budget should be larger or smaller, because first we should put the current budget or the current spending priorities on a sound footing, and once we can prove that indeed it's based on sound footing, then we can discuss whether we want to spend more on certain issues or not. I think that's a really fair point, and, and, and let's, tackle, let's tackle that issue head on. Uh, the promotion of spending on, on as pan-European as possible, public goods, sounds a really fine, fine goal and, 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 and truly virtuous. But the reality is that, you know, this union and its members operate and make these decisions in groups of alliances dominated by member states. Let's not name names. We all know who they are. And um, one of the top uh, messages in the memos that you've worked on is to um, divest spending from the budget on the common agriculture policy. How is that going to happen realistically? I think every commission for the past 10, 15 years has talked about that. And, and now what's fascinating is that you have such specific uh, areas of policy that genuinely demand desperately more investment. Um, but how do you convince politicians and their constituencies to, to look away from agriculture? And at a time of trade wars where farmers in Europe could end up losing out, um, and at a time when a lot of heads of government are facing really tough elections and farmers continue to be an important constituent. Um, how do you do that practically? I, I think you would be hard-pressed in Brussels unless any of you are, are sort of have shares in, in some agriculture concern in your country to disagree with you on that. But how to do it? Well, in the previous discussions, the use of a metaphor of a ship has been used, which is going slowly in one direction, and it's very difficult to, 
to move it or, or, or any other way. And I'm afraid this metaphor also describes how we deal with agriculture policy. In fact, if you look at the past 20 or 30 years, what we do see some gradual reduction in agricultural spending uh, as a share of, of total EU spending or as a share of, share of GNI. So some, some slow process is indeed ongoing. And even the, the previous commission in their proposal, which is currently under negotiation, suggested some, some I would say, significant cuts to agriculture policy. Now we see a lot of comments from both sides. I mean, especially the major beneficiaries of this policy don't want to see such a huge decline. I mean, others who are more skeptical, they, they, they welcome that. I think the key point is to, is to focus on, on what are the real goals of agricultural policy and how do we achieve them. For example, one of the goals is again coming back to the environment, is promoting uh, uh, I mean, <clears throat> the environment, fighting climate change, promoting biodiversity, and so on and so on. But we can look at a nice report from the European Court of Auditors, uh, which report concluded that, that the EU's agriculture policy hardly achieves those goals, for example, in, in, terms, of, in terms of agri uh, uh, climate change and, and, and biodiversity. So there are major question marks whether the current policy is able to achieve its goals. And in fact, if you look at the composition of agricultural spending, still the most of it, three quarters of it, uh, includes income support to farmers, uh, which again, in my view, is very questionable whether this is, this is a pan-European uh, rationale. I mean, income support is more a social policy, in my view. So if you regard that important, then, then we should call it a, a social policy and not agricultural policy. And what the Commission can do is to write honest reports about the achievements of, of CAP, engage in more and more discussion, involve also more outside researchers into the debate, and again, in a slow-moving way, try to convince member states that reduction in this policy, especially on the income support part, would be justified and we can use the money which we can save for many much more beneficial goals. Um, I'm just going to take a question from someone who used their name. Thank you, Florian Schildheuer. I hope I didn't butcher your name there. Um, and, and I think he asks a question that's sort of about funding of, of EU activities, but it's a bit of a sort of side, side branch, perhaps, and maybe you have some thoughts, and I don't mean to ambush you. Um, do you believe that the Commission would need to further mobilize monetary resources to support non-governmental organizations and direct youth toward a more sustainable future? So is, um, which is very political, is this potentially a good use of, of the budget um, apart from big block of policies like what we're talking about, like the agriculture or digital or indeed um, the environment? Um, directing part of the funding specifically to actors who are not within the states or more NGO-directed and with a special interest in, in youth? Well, even already, several EU programs finance projects for which various kinds of actors, including non-governmental organizations, can apply, and they do apply, and 
quite significant am amount of money is going to th that sector. I think the, the more important question is, but the purpose of the spending, and then once we identify the purpose, then certainly who should be able to claim or, or apply for such funding comes into question. And, and certainly I, I very much welcome that non-governmental actors, including NGOs, also apply and receive funding from the EU budget. Okay, I think I'm gonna stop there. We're already five minutes behind schedule. However, I have made a promise to myself to not run more than 20 minutes behind schedule. Um, and the rest of you to keep your day on track. Thanks so much, Zolt, for your time. And fresh from Hong Kong, I think. Thank you. <laughs> we have Alicia Garcia Herrero. Um, so it's just a whiff of tear gas I get from, from you. Um, God, we really, uh, we really kept the big, the big guns for the end because we're going to talk a bit about Europe's place in the world and, and its relationship with China, which are obviously massive existential questions right now in, in, in the way the world is, is moving and, and changing. And I think let's start with trade because that's the obvious the obvious place to start in this time where alliances and deals are being done and undone and and the european union for all its machinery to deal with it the hordes of of, of lawyers and officials and and its existential support of multilateralism and free trade this is something that is clearly part of the DNA of this union, much more than it is for, for other countries and for other blocks of countries in the world, um, finds itself in a period of, of moving sands. I'm sorry, I feel like I've, been, I've turned my back at you guys for the, so I do apologize. Hi. Um, so what is the European Union's place in the world in these um, shifting sands and, and how to pursue the agenda of multilateralism, in particular when it comes to trade, when there's such a sort of rapid and enthusiastic retrenchment for it, from it, from many of, of our traditional partners? Thanks for the question. Thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. It's just packed, so I'm very, very happy for Brugel. And I just have to say that when we were writing this memo, Andre and I, on trade, um, he knowing everything and me hardly anything, I just thought, frankly speaking, living in Hong Kong, that China was kind of the master of the universe in trade, you know, because that's all I hear there. And, you know, this global sharing manufacturing, which, by the way, is coming down slightly, but being the largest ever. And thanks to Andre and his data, I, I figured, and we have that in our memo, that actually we are the largest trader in the world, we Europeans, it's 16% as opposed to less than 13% for China and in between the US. And this is because we're including imports. You see what I mean? I mean, it's not all about exporting manufacturing to the world. It's about actually creating balanced trade. And I think we Europeans are there for that. So first point is we are indeed very big trade-wise. We've been instrumental in what the WTO is, certainly Andre, uh, as I said, certainly not me, but I can understand that, and I can understand why if you've been instrumental for something and you know it's created so much wealth for the world, including China, certainly China, 
we should all strive to keep this going, including China. Now, the thing is, of course, what we mean by the WTO survival and keeping this multilateral uh, system might be slightly different. Uh, and I won't get into how the US perceives all of that because you've already uh, basically made a point there. So I guess the point is, if it's so important for us, we're at the end of the day net exporters and large traders, and it's so important for China, and let's forget about the rest of the world for a moment, why can't we agree on something that makes sense for everybody? I, I think that's the first way to go about it, and we make that point in our memo um, very clearly, uh, that you know, we would have to come to, to some kind of agreement on multilateralism for trade that makes sense for all. Right. Um, I mean, I think that that sounds another fine cause, but I'll take a question from the audience before, um, or from Slido before going back into my questions. And, and I think that's also, uh, you know, in, in the context of reassessing relationships and, and looking at the world and looking for new opportunities uh, for trade and, and for the European Union to actually establish its relationship with the rest of the world, there are quite clearly two areas that are partly overlooked, um, and, and those are Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, Latin America less so now with Mercosur, which is front yeah. and center, but still, it's a you know, massive part of the world. Um, and I've just lost the question, ah, there we go. Mitchell Newland asks, do you see an opportunity for greater cooperation with Africa and Latin America to form a third coalition between the USA and China? Yes, so this is uh, all about, uh, is there any world outside of the US and China? Yes, indeed. And actually, the world is pretty big, excluding these two hegemons or existing and incoming hegemons. So, so I guess that's the way, uh, and, and we make that point in our memo, for Europe to go, basically to realize that it can really become a broker of, of all of other parties, which certainly looking at what China has achieved could realize that preserving the existing multilateral trading system is the only way to go for all of them. And, and beyond Africa and Latin America, I would certainly include India in, in this realm. And, and, and the European Commission started negotiations, which then were abandoned. So, so we make very strong point in our memo, please uh, you know, reconsider, <laughs> because this is a major economy from the European perspective to look into. We have also some, uh, you know, uh, not abandoned, but not fully uh, ratified uh, agreement with Vietnam. If coming from Hong Kong, when you see what's happening with Vietnam and how everybody's looking at Vietnam as a place to be in, in the current standoff in terms of tariffs affecting everybody, but not Vietnam, you can imagine how important ratifying that agreement might be. So there's life outside the US and China, and we should certainly look into that very, very aggressively as Europeans. Um, and, and, and if I may, smaller agreements with, with smaller countries or groupings of countries, uh, however sort of, you know, the Euro tag on them might be smaller, do make the point that the European Union remains very active in pursuing this linkage with the rest of the world at a time when everyone's taking a bit of a pause. So uh, that's another from a communications perspective that does send a message. But I, I do want to go back to, to the, the question of, you know, this bipolar, however, asymmetric world we're living in and, and Europe's place in it. Um, 
and, and it seems this is not, not dissimilar to the question I asked earlier about digital innovation and Europe's place in the world in that respect between the U.S. and China. Is there any way that the European Union can define or redefine its place in the world and its relationship with the U.S. and its relationship with China without those two being about the U.S.-China relationship? Is there any way that these can be decoupled and approached as individual relationships without again getting wedged between these two powers that currently seem to, to be clashing in, in, in a way that doesn't really seem to be, that, that the EU shouldn't really have skin in the game? Yeah. Okay, I think that there's only one way to do that, if you ask me. Uh, and the, the, the one and only way is to, for, for Europe to look as Europe and not a bunch of countries. I don't know whether we can achieve that, but that's the only way forward, because as a bunch of countries, we're simply too small. And, and, and I see that every day on my daily life. Yeah? So, so basically, every month we have a European leader visiting Beijing. We have one now. And, you know, and uh, they all have their own high-level economic dialogues, let alone their high economic, I mean, the European-level high economic dialogue. There's no way we can achieve anything like that. It's just not, we're not, we're not strong enough on, on, a, on a single basis, some more than others, but still not enough for China. So, and, and I guess the same could be, uh, could be said about the US. But in the case of China, which I know better, it's very, very clear that unity makes, you know, makes it all. And, and when you look at our GDP as a whole, that's what China looks at, but then, you know, it's pieces and bits, let alone external policy, because you're not, you're dealing with a country, rightly so, I mean, it's, it's understandable, that, that understands itself as, an, as a unity. And, and thus, economic policies, trade, investment, are linked to everything, national security, you name it. We go with piecemeal agendas. So, you know, how can you ever find that space? And frankly, the rest of the world would be very keen for us to find that space, because it would mean that they don't have to choose either or side, so they have some kind of in-between space offered by Europe, but we have, they have to realize there is such thing as Europe, and Europe meaning the European Union. So that's why it is so hard to, to play that middle game. And, and just one last question from me um, before we conclude this session. So much of, of these relationship issues um, around trade, but also around obviously foreign policy, are underpinned by this traditional idea of values, values shared, values we disagree on, and, and for the longest time we've taken uh, sharing values or not sharing values as a given, they have been fixtures of relationships. What the current U.S. administration, for example, highlights is that clearly some of these things are actually dynamic, um, and, and potentially so should Europe's relationships be. At the moment, there, there seems to be additional awkwardness for the European Union in, in losing a partner in, in the U.S. that shares these values in a very clear, unequivocal way. And, and, and this awkwardness permeates mm -hmm. a lot of, of shared policy um, arenas, mm -hmm. for example, let's say, I don't know, Iran, in foreign policy, etc. Um, at the same time, you're seeing some rhetoric coming from Beijing that actually we share your values for more than ever 
China shares European Union values, and and that's certainly a, a point that some of, of you know Chinese champions have have uh, tried to make in their pitches to European Union um, member states. Um, then you have events in Hong Kong, and you and and you really start to wonder quite deeply what what sharing values we we're really seeing. Can you just talk briefly about the role of these values in this era of you know, no absolutes um, in underpinning these relationships. And, and, and perhaps one opinion would be we shouldn't care about values. We should only care about, we should only care about money or we should only care about jobs. What do you think? Well, it's a tricky, very tricky question. I guess I need to answer, given, you know, everybody here. Um, frankly speaking, we all talk about values in Europe. I hear you. But once we're within Europeans, we'll also talk about how different our values may be. Yeah? Don't we? Yeah. Especially in difficult situations. So if, if I take the point that our values are not as similar after all, and we've had instances of very difficult moments among us, why would I have to start you know, this conversation of how close are my values one side or another? Why don't I just try to first figure out how close my values within the European Union are so that I can go further. Because my only point here is that if we go further in integration, then we have a chance. So for me, it's more important to figure out whether our values are close enough than how close they are to China or the US. That, that, that's the first thing I would like to say. Then I guess um, if we were to agree on that, that our values are close enough, then we're wasting our time here because we don't even have unanimity. I mean, we are still running unanimity decisions for external policy. Uh, unanimity means that we don't believe, we don't believe we share values because if we do share them, we don't need unanimity. So imagine we go past that, which would be nice. Then I could start thinking, indeed, I, I agree with the US statement. Values are dynamic, not that what we see from the US side looks as appealing as it used to compared to our values. And, and maybe Chinese values will be dynamic too. I may not fully you know, share everything I see and, and I can't deny it, but you know, it's, it's, a trans it's a process, yeah? So, and again, within Europe, we have very different opinions on China. This 16, 17 by now plus one and actually we could even count Italy in, so it would be even more than that, uh, seem to share. So again, back to the question, do we share ourselves? That's the first thing we need to deal with. And then we can start looking around. But right. if we don't solve that one, I just think that that, that conversation as to where we're, where, how, how close we are to one or another makes no sense to me. Right, and with this call for introspection, just as we look to the world. Um, I'm going to thank you so much and thanks everyone of you for participating, for staying with us this morning. Um, I hope you have an amazing day. I'm sure it's going to be very fruitful and I, I hope to see you all again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Giuseppe, the head of communication of Bruegel. I have some housekeeping for you. So now we are going to have a very short break because we are running out of time. And uh, uh, I will tell you where the different sessions are going to be. So the session on how can Europe's economy thrive in the digital age will be taking place in the Salle du Tron, which is uh, on the 
first floor in the main building on the other side, then the session on Europe's trade policy with Alicia that was just here on stage and Andre will take place in the auditorium, which also is on the other uh, building. And uh, then uh, here in the, in the room that is just beside the plenary, there is going to be a session on making carbon pricing work. Uh, I also want to uh, tell you that the lunch will be served in the main building, in uh, in a room that is opposite to the marble, uh, to the throne, to the throne room. There will be sign and so on, but the lunch is served over there. And then we're going to be back here for plenary at uh, uh, at 1 p.m. for a session on priorities for the new EU leadership. Thank you very much.